Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. My guest today is the writer and keen amateur entomologist, Adrian Tchaikovsky. Adrian is the author of the acclaimed Shadows of the App series, which spans 10 volumes and more recently, Guns of Dawn, a Napoleonic historical fantasy novel, as well as Spiderlight, a sword and sorcery novel. He's been nominated for the David Gemmell Legend Award and the British Fantasy Society Award. And in 2016, his science fiction novel, Children of Time won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Also in 2016, Macmillan published The Tiger and the Wolf, the first book in his new Iron Age fantasy series, Echoes of the Fall. Adrian lives in Leeds, England with his family and works as a legal executive. So Adrian, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Hello. I want to start by asking you if you could tell us what you enjoyed reading and watching when you were a child. What were those formative cultural influences on you? Um, what got me into reading was actually the Target Doctor Who novelizations, which they had a, an abundance of at our local library. I actually used to go down to the library every weekend and pick up whatever ones they had I, that I hadn't read. I mean, that that's what I first remember reading. I think it's what that's what got me to love reading in and of itself. When I was a bit old, I think probably the, the writer who had the greatest influence on me must have been Diane Wynne-Jones. Ah, yes. Okay. So what about you as a writer? When did you start writing? I didn't ever write stories just for myself, which I think of a lot of how a lot, how a lot of people start. When I started writing, I started writing with the idea that I was writing for sort of general consumption. And the thing that got me started on that was actually the Dragonlance books by uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Because I was a very, very keen um, role player, reading those books, which I enormously enjoyed, I suddenly thought, well, actually, I could do this. This is based, you know, it's, it's, it's someone who's written up a kind of a role-playing game campaign. And I could do that. And, I mean, as, as it happened, I couldn't. Um, and it took me a long time to get to the point where I was writing anything that was actually sort of readable by anyone else. But... It was really that, that, that opened the door. And I, th- I think actually the first submission I made, sort of 18 year old innocence, was actually to TSR over in Lake Geneva in America, who presumably had no idea what the hell to do with it. <laughs> well, at least you had some enthusiasm to have a go. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's one of those situations where actually not knowing how much of a task it actually would be to get published was probably the only real thing keeping me going. I mentioned earlier that you're a keen amateur entomologist. Can you tell us what an entomologist is and how you use this interest in your work? Oh, well, I mean, an entomologist is um, someone who studies insects in particular. And for me, it kind of generalizes to invertebrates as a whole, to be honest. Okay. And I should stress it's the emphasis is very, very much on the on the amateur. <laughs> I do know some professional entomologists who've, who've helped me with some of some of my writing. And yeah, they, they, they are very, very serious. And it's a very, very detailed thing. And there are obviously an insane number of different types of insect to, for study and so forth and so on. But I mean, I yeah, I mean, I I've always loved insects. I find them very aesthetically pleasing. I used to at school, basically draw insects in the margins of my books and work insects insect into whatever piece of work I've been given. I was always told it would never get me anywhere, and that turned out to be a lie. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and so obviously The Shadows of the App were the first um, series of books I got published. They are very insecty, and a lot of my other stuff has been sort of, well, arthropody, I suppose, with Children of Time. Yes. And I mean, technically, I have now written stuff that doesn't have insects in it, but that's very much the exception in 
for my canon than rather than the rule. And I think it's it's one of those things. You write about what you know and you write about what you like, and that and it, that gives you an extra level of enjoyment in your own work, which I think is very helpful in, in getting sort of like full-length novels and so forth actually finished. You've said that your use of insects and creepy crawlies comes out of an interest and passion rather than an adherence to a literary tradition. What lessons are there in this for writers in terms of simply writing what you're passionate about? Um, actually, the weird thing is there is actually a literary tradition. I, I used to basically pretend that I was very much sort of in the, the Kafka, Pelavin sort of. There's there, there for some reason a big Eastern European insects as social commentary thing which which i i shamelessly tried to hitch on on on. but no it it does it does it does come down to i really really like insects i think one of the things that that adds to the work really it adds a certain amount of depth when i'm when i'm in my element and writing about the right things that i i know and i'm interested in it adds an extra amount of life and having the knowledge of it as long as i'm not kind of um just info dumping stuff it's one reason why the world of shadows of the apt is so is so detailed is be- just because there's that whole ex- extra body of body of, le- of learning that i'm feeding into it also frankly i mean Ch- children of time which has you know certainly been my big success story to date would never have been written without that interest I, I it's not a book i think i would ever have conceived of if i hadn't already had that Sort of deep obsession, really, with spells and things like that. My my best friend is an arachnophobe, and he read Children of Time, and he found himself very much rooting for the spiders. And I think, I mean, it's one of those. There are these things that that a very large number of people are extremely unhappy about, and if I've brought even a few people around to not sort of squishing the next spider they see, it kind of you know, I help the spiders, and the spiders help me in a way. Now, in the context of research, I know you've said know a lot and say a little. And I wondered if you could expand a little bit on that and talk to us about how you think a writer should gather and apply research for their work. Did I actually say that? Because that doesn't sound very much like me. I think it's very good advice. I don't think it's necessarily <laughs> advice I've, I've, I've followed particularly rigorously, and certainly in my earlier work. But yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, you've got to know about this, uh, a subject, or at least it will help you write better about a subject if you know about it in depth. But you get to this point with, um, I guess it's a little knowledge of the dangerous thing, where you know enough that you want to disseminate that knowledge, and that's not a very good narrative technique if you want to teach someone about uh, I don't know, medieval German broadsword techniques um, as part of the narrative, unless you do it extremely carefully, because otherwise it'll turn into something that's neither fish nor fowl, or fish nor flesh, or whatever the saying is. Uh, and you'll end up with something that, that is neither a very interest, uh, interesting story nor a very educational um, treatment of this of the subject, just a bit of a, a muddle. And obviously you get, I mean, one of the things you get, even with entirely fictional information in some fantasy, is this huge info dump of all this dump of this has happened and this has happened and these people have done that. And it's even worse if the writer has something of a hobby horse that they want to kind of educate you about. So with Children of Time, for example, how did you avoid the problem of over-spidering it? <laughs> how did you judge what research to put in and what research to leave out? I think Children of Time is a bit of a different case, a special case amongst my books. And in all honesty, I think science fiction is probably a little more tolerant of that kind of input of information than, than fantasy. I mean, I think, I think fantasy... Fantasy slows down an awful lot if you start getting into the minutiae of the world building, which is frequently where you find that kind of problem. And God knows, I'm, I'm sure it's something I've done. I think with Children of Time, I basically had to approach certainly the spider section of the book with the understanding that basically I was just going to, to do this. I was going to go in and, and tell people this is how it works. And, the, and one, of, one of the things I'm doing in the spider sections with the way they're written, they're, they're written in quite a, a specific way, is I'm basically 
kind of doing as if David Attenborough was narrating it. I'm doing it like um, a nature documentary, where of course you do. It is all about um, getting that information across in a in a palatable fashion. It's because they're being narrated as you see the images. I just want to concentrate on this issue of setting for the moment. In the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast, I talk about setting needing to be both credible and immersive or credible and interesting Mm -hmm. if we think about all of your work i wonder if you could just comment on how you go about achieving those two objectives with setting um i must say i mean i certainly for me as a reader i think if it's not credible it's not immersive because it's it's that lack of credibility is is the thing that will drag me out and it, it can be weird little details um and you always run into the problem of there's always going to be a reader who knows something you don't and spot something that you don't realize you've got wrong and that will break the immersion for them i mean i i lent what i what i thought was a rather good sort of sherlock holmes pastiche to a friend of mine and they came back having been completely unable to enjoy it because of the travel times for a victorian train between i think london and edinburgh because they're a train buff and that was a big thing to them and i i I tend to be the same with natural history details if i run into something i know is wrong it's quite it's it's something i have to work quite hard to get past which is very pedantic of me but it's just I think everyone has something that is their trigger for that kind of thing. There is, I mean, when, when you're dealing with any, anything real world, and obviously even with fantastical worlds, most fantasy worlds are fairly solidly based in a certain amount of history and a certain amount of physics and things like that. The problem is you always hit a, hit a limit beyond which you're just not going to re- think to go. You don't know what it is you don't know. And I think that's just an unavoidable thing that there are always going to be some readers that you happen to push the buttons off entirely inadvertently. But obviously with a fantasy world, you get a lot of power much more than you do and i think in any other genre when you're creating that world but the duty is that you use it to create something that has that internal consistency and i think it's that that gives it its immersive quality okay and when you're planning these worlds how do you weave in the really big themes and the really big factors like geography and economy and culture and religion and commerce um there'll always be some big stuff that is basically part of the initial concept and that everyone else kind of accretes around with a lot of the other stuff what i tend to do i try to get a very good understanding of the nuts and bolts of sort of what the people believe what the people are like and then things effectively unfold organically and that's certainly how the uh shadows of the out world worked although admittedly i had a bit of a head start on that one because it started the role-playing game setting and um with the um the new echoes of the fall series the tiger and the wolf one um again i started with a small number of axioms so everyone's a shape changer the technology level is like this they so the social structures are like this and a lot of the other stuff especially to do with how people what people believed and how people sort of approached the world kind of developed by its own internal logic from the set from the um those initial seeds that i planted and i find that that that's how i make um, a world that i feel i can believe in your Shadows of the App series now spans 10 novels. How do you manage to plan on that sort of scale? I had a reasonable idea of what was going to happen for the first four books. In fact, I mean, I was obviously, it's the first thing I got into print. And in fact, the first four books were already written by the time I submitted them. I then had some sort of major points of where I wanted the action to go for probably the next two or three books. And really, most of what happens after that is just logical consequence of what has happened previously. So certainly the whole end game, everything that happens with um, Seda and Che, pretty much all the kind of the, the technological arms race stuff in um, books eight and nine, all of that just kind of 
happens on its own without me sitting down and deliberately planning it. I just have to sit down and think, well, what this has happened? This has happened in the previous book. What's the, that's going to have some sort of consequence? What will the other side do? Um, so I mean, I, mu- I must have been looking back on it now and, and with my rather better handle of how the whole writing and publishing industry works. I am amazed I got away with a 10 book series. <laughs> well, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I want to come on to talk a little bit about character now. I noticed that you're able to create these really clear and delineated characters in your work. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how you go about creating character and how you've achieved that. I've got a couple of techniques, really. One one thing is uh, my characters really arrive in the same way that the, the details of the world arrives, in that once I've got enough of the world logic under my belt, the characters flesh out really because I know where they come from and I know the culture they have and I know the the kind of the social background a lot of what they are and what their opinions and attitudes are will kind of arise quite naturally and then of course you just have that final filter of um what their individual kind of reaction against or sort of conformity with that sort of those cultural stereotypes is and I mean this I mean again the this is a bit of a godsend for Shadows of the App because there are a lot of characters and there are a lot of minor characters. And I felt at least that I, I knew who all of the characters were, even the, even the relatively small ones, just because they all of them had that sort of that wealth of shared history to them. I mean, the, the other thing the other thing I tend to do, and this is something I think I've got very much out of um, role playing games, is I tend to have almost like um, I think I, I tend to describe it as a, a gestalt for each character, so I can basically I can put that on. Almost like, almost, almost like a mask and get a, get a filter for the world through that character's eyes. And that lets me work, that lets me write from the point of view of that character for as long as I need to. Okay. In Children of Time, you present an authentically tender and poignant relationship between two relatively hard people, Lane and Holston, who are both placed under a lot of pressure by their environment. How did you go about creating these characters and this relationship? I'm going to completely say I didn't actually plan that relationship between them at all. I basically got to the point, I think, at the end of their first section of the book together, and I left them alone in a room, and it kind of just seemed to be the natural thing that would happen. And it starts off as not, it doesn't really, it starts off really as, as, as the only two people awake on this enormous kind of, um, cryogenic ship, um, just wanting a bit of human contact and effectively a bit of, um, Casual sex, to be honest. And then because of this weird way where they are, especially Holston is kind of coming in and out of deep sleep and intersecting with Lane at various points, they kind of become the, the anchor for each other. And I think that, that's what their relationship is built about. But it, it's, it's very odd and I didn't really, it wasn't really part of the original plan, but I think it, it does add, it adds a bit of an extra dimension to the human sex and to the book. Absolutely it does. And I guess this, comes back to what you said earlier about getting into the mindset of the characters and seeing what they'd get up to and seeing what they do it's weird i mean it seems it's i think it gives the it gives them a spontaneity i wouldn't necessarily be able to replicate by trying to stage manage everything about them in a number of your books the cast are not human so how do you go about dealing with the challenge of creating characters that are distinct and recognizable but are also fundamentally different from us i think there's a certain sort of scientific approach you can make to that i mean i haven't yet really done the holy grail of this sort of thing which is to try and present a character which is genuinely alien and yet is presented in a way that my human readers can uh, can appreciate and that's a really really tricky thing and i I mean i don't think it's ever been quite 
done in anything I've read. Certainly there's uh, some which have come close. But um, but I've got, for example, so with the spiders and the children in Children of Time, or for that matter, with uh, in, in um, Spider Light, you're at least dealing with with creatures that have a a shared evolutionary history and have a, a shared environment. So they're not entirely alien. And, and admittedly, they're the bit of magicianly wand waving in Children of Time because of the way that they are uplifted. So that to a certain extent, there's something that's trying to make them more human than they necessarily would be but i mean the big shortcut to writing something that at least that comes over as alien is working with the senses so the the children of time spiders are very um chemosensitive and they're vibration sensitive and they're visual they don't really hear particularly well and they, so they work with different metaphors effectively they work and they work um their technology works in different ways and their art works in different ways all because of their their physiology and because of their sensorium and you've got a whole sequence in spiderlight because in, in, in spiderlight you basically have it's a very lord of the ringsy sort of setup there is your adventuring party there is a dark lord and to, in order to fulfill their prophecy they end up having to recruit a giant spider which the magician of the party helpfully gives a roughly human shape to and so nth who is very used to a world where he's not visual at all and is entirely vibration based in both communication and senses suddenly has to deal with being human and having no protective shell and all these extra senses and having to basically engage with humans and it's that um that's generally my starting point when i'm working with something with something non-human i think it's one of the most powerful tools to make something alien is just have it experience the world in a different way to we do, than we do, because it's something we, we take for granted. Understanding the other and writing the other are hot topics in science fiction and the wider literary landscape at the moment. Now, you deal with this issue of what it is to be human and how we engage with the other in a very intriguing way in The Children of Time. What would be your advice to writers who want to present the other in their work? Well, first of all, just to check that that's actually what they want. There's an awful lot of both science fictional and fantasy other that aren't very other at all. You know, you've got your, your aliens that are basically just humans of a certain personality type. So these are the logical aliens. Or you've got the kind of elves and dwarves sort of end of the fantasy fantasy market, which is exactly the same. They're basically humans, except they don't have the same range of personalities as humans. They're always, you know, within a certain corner of the personality types. And obviously, you know, that works very well. It's a very useful shorthand for a lot of things. And the same goes for, you know, you have a lot of sci-fi, oh, these are the cat aliens, and they are basically like humans, but with, with cat things thrown in. But that's not alien. You know, if we meet aliens, they're not going to look like cats. They're not going to look like insects because cats and insects all evolved on our world. So whatever an alien looks like, it's going to be more alien to us, both in the way that um, it looks and all, especially in the way that it just is put together internally than anything on, on planet Earth. And I think that's the trick, really. It's if you want to write the other, it's getting out of those shortcuts and accepting, well, it's not necessarily going to think or have the same values. I mean, the same very much goes if you're writing for, say, an artificial intelligence. So... Again, even though it may well be something that can interact with humans, it's not necessarily something that's going to have the same goals and interests as humans, uh, because that itself is a very human motivation. Some of the, some of the best stuff is, um, the, the early Gibson, Neuromancer and the ones after that, because the AIs in that 
they're quite capable of talking down to humans, but they're very, very different. So there's a book by um, Ian Stewart and Jack Cohen, which goes under a couple of titles, but Evolving the Alien is the one that I have it. That's a very, very good, well-written text on looking at basically what would an alien be like. And that's a very, very good scientific grounding if you want to, if you want to set out to, to write something genuinely alien. And as we've never met an alien, we don't know what necessarily would carry over. I mean, obviously, there is a limit to the number of um, readily formable amino acids. Um, <laughs> there are the, you know, if you, if you take an even vaguely Earth-like planet, then there are going to be similar challenges. Yeah. And there are probably a limited number of ways of solving solving those challenges. A limited number of ways of flying, of seeing. Although, I mean, even say seeing eyes have evolved a remarkable number of times entirely independently, as far as we can work out in the in the fossil record. Okay. In my podcast, I'm dealing with issues around genre and their associated tropes at the moment. And um, the challenges that writers have in dealing with and working with these genre categories and also giving readers tropes that they're familiar with and are looking out for in a sense, but giving them in an original and fresh way. How do you approach those sorts of challenges in your work? I think that you tend just culturally you pick up narrative tropes as you go along yes. and they they will always inform your inform your writing whether you're replicating them or whether you're reacting against them I, mean, well, I think one of the things that worked so well with a lot with some of the early uh, game of thrones books for example was the way that those narrative tropes were subverted and way and the way that kind of contract with the reader that certain things will happen and certain you know, certain victories will be have was very, very intentionally shattered quite early on. So that you left that uncertainty. Well, basically, if, well, if he's gone, then anyone is now fair game, and you don't know what's going to happen. But so I think, I mean, tropes, tropes are very useful both to work with and to work against. Back with Children of Time, I'm taking a creature that is vastly disliked by an enormous number of people and making them into my protagonists and effectively encouraging people to empathize with them. And that, you know, that, that's again, it, I think in a way I, I'm more interested in turning things on their head where I can than just, um, than following the same track. I mean, in the same way that with, um, a lot of Shadows of the Apt, you've got a fantasy world, but the fantasy world where there is a very, very swift buildup of technology. So the Bible Kate, you're basically having, um, you know, uh, airplanes bombing fantasy cities yeah i want to talk a little bit more about this issue of subverting the trope because certainly i think in children of time there are some wonderful subversions of the trope in there and i wondered if you could just talk a little bit more around that subject what what advice would you give to writers who want to really exploit that concept of of taking existing tropes but turning them on their heads and turning them inside out and making something new and original out of them I think it's that you need to have a reason to do it rather than just to do it. Because you do, okay, I mean, especially, I mean, again, in the same kind of modern fantasy, so what, you know, what people might refer to as grim dark fantasy, or that, that, that whole, you do tend to run into some books which push, push it sufficiently far that it's really just being done for the shock value. And I think at that point, it's not doing much of a literary job. And, you know, I, I possibly it's a personal, personal re- reader choice, but I, you know, I find a book that's just bludgeoning me over the head with pulling me, pulling the rug out from on my feet and, oh, he's, he's dead now and that's happened now and isn't it all terrible? It, it can get a bit overwhelming and it can get a bit, um, unsatisfying. And I think even though we are frequently trying to work away from the tropes of um, earlier fantasy novels, you still have a certain contract with the reader. You still have a, to give them um, to give them closure, to give them a denouement, whether it's on a, a sort of macro scale for the world or whether it's on an individual scale for a character. And if you if you simply constantly thumb your nose at that, you'll basically end up with a 
with a book that is possibly a bit of a frustrating read. I think that's one reason why actually a lot of modern fantasy also has a lot of humour in it, because that does take take the edge off that kind of darkness if you if the characters are able to you know to turn a bit of a wry look on the world. Even yeah, even even as it's uh, stamping on them. I mean, you've got it in um, in KJ Parker and in Abercrombie. And it, I mean, I, in all honesty, I think it's probably something you get more than you don't in the really successful ones. I think it's it's probably the ingredient of making that kind of thing work. Okay, so one of the other things that we're looking at in the podcast at the moment is combining genres. So stories that combine more than one genre, like maybe romance and horror together, or murder mystery in space, or maybe a fantasy story that's actually a heist as well. I wondered if you had any experience of writing stories with more than one genre and what would you say about how to deal with stories like that i suppose the the my best shot of that would probably be under the dawn which is a military fantasy novel that also has a fairly integral romance plot as part of it. it's actually it's a very tricky thing to do and i'm saying that because one of the things i've certainly seen that kind of um genre mixing go quite badly one of the things you do see a lot is people seizing on crime and detective uh, as a genre to splice in with other things and it can be done extremely well i mean i would say um adam roberts jack glass has got a fantastic kind of whodunit element in hard in hard um science fiction and i think it, it's something that works very well with with particularly with science fiction because you have that kind of logical element to the way that the um the books and the worlds work but i think you also run the danger if you don't put extra special care in you can end up with let's say a fantasy that also is centered around a sort of whodunit detective police procedural story or something like that and you can end up with a fantasy story that is not a particularly engaging fantasy and a crime story that's not a particularly interesting mystery because you're trying to whack too many moles at the same time (laughs) i think if you're doing that sort of thing you want to do it well you've got to bear in mind you're probably basically have to put in the plot work for two books if you work properly not just half a book of Yeah, I'm a fantasy writer more than anything. And it may seem terribly easy to me. Well, I'll write a fantasy book, but I'll write it around this kind of uh, a a murder mystery story. But I'm not a murder mystery writer. And it's very easy, I think, to be cavalier about how terribly easy genres you don't write in probably are to write. When, in fact, obviously, they're the huge amount of tradecraft that's, that's below the surface. Now, I know you've got quite a history with role-playing games and being involved with reenactments and even some experience with using a sword. I wonder if you could just talk about how those experiences have helped you as a writer. Yes, um, a few ways, actually. I mean, one of the things... I've done a lot of uh, games mastering, and when you're a, when you're a games master and you're making a world in a role playing game, you don't have the luxury of having characters who will just do what you want them to do. So you effectively have to, when you're world building, you have to be always thinking, well, what's around the next corner? What if they what if they go there? What if they do that? And while because you can't obviously make hammer all these details out to the sort of nth degree, you have to get a very good handle of how the world works. So that you can improvise when you're, when the party of adventures just takes a left turn. I think one of the other things is, and I, I do wonder how much of this is at the root of a lot of modern fantasy, because an awful lot of modern fantasy writers are also role players. If you look back at, say, Tolkien and early sort of 70s and 80s fantasy, it's quite morally clear cut. You know that the heroes are going to be heroic and the villains are going to be villainous. Um, if you look at how role players tend to behave, you can't necessarily rely on them doing the right thing. They, you know, they can be quite dark, they can be quite grim, they can behave, in fact, a lot like Locke Lamora or a lot like characters in Jared Crombie's book. They can, they, 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 they can be much more morally compromised than your traditional sort of 70s, 80s fantasy hero. And I think 
I do wonder how much of what we what we've got at the moment in fantasy, which I think is, has at least a much more complex moral spectrum, is because people have come out of that role playing game background, and that's what they're used to heroes doing. Yeah, I'm interested in talking about voice and style as well. A number of authors and editors I've spoken to, especially editors, have told me just about how important voice is. And I wondered if you were conscious of developing a writer's voice and how you went about doing that. For me, it's I think that's something that just happened. And in all honesty, I think a lot of my, my kind of later writing years have been me trying to work out what my voice actually is and cut back on the parts that aren't so good. So, I mean, I... As the length of some of my books will probably show, I, I have had a tendency in the past to overwrite. And it's something that I'm now becoming more consciously aware of as a thing I do, that I'm trying to basically stamp out and write tighter, tighter books. I mean, I, I, for example, I have, a, I've, I found a tendency when I'm going back through edits, I tend to say things twice in slightly different fashion, once after, one after another. Um, because obviously when I'm writing it, I think of two ways of saying a thing and I just throw them both in. So going back in and cutting out the slightly, lo- <laughs> the less good, but less good variant would cut you a lot of words. So it's beyond that. I mean, I, I think it's one of those things that, that writers are not necessarily best qualified to talk about their own stuff for. There are certainly writers whose voices and styles I like as a reader, but I mean, where, where my mind falls and what my kind of eccentricities are of actual writing style, I probably couldn't say. And I think it's all, it's one of those things I think is going to arise out of the things you read as well, or the things you've read in the past. You know, you, you, you learn about right, you learn about writing from reading to a certain extent. Yeah. Okay. Now I also want to talk about what I call the writer's life. Now I think you've got uh, a job and you've got family. Yes. And you do all your writing. So I'm just wondering how you manage to fit all those things in and juggle them in your life. Um, well, I, I've got a, my day job is now down to three and a half days, um, which obviously frees up you know, quite a bit of extra time that I can devote to writing. But I'm lucky in that I've always been a very late night type of person. And my, back, back when back when I was at university or back when I was um, you know, back before I was working part time, I generally just write late on kind of 10 to midnight slot is my is my writing slot. And as far as sort of um, a strategy or a routine goes, I just try and write something every day. I try and get, you know, even if it's just a page or, or a couple of pages, I try and get something done on whatever my main project is. I tend to stick to one project until it's done. So I'll write something long and then I'll take a break and mop up any sort of short stories that I've got on the back burner. And then I'll go, well, I mean, it's one of, I, my writing this year is looking extremely busy. I've got quite a few projects sort of queued up. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm just having to slam through them one after another and, and, and kind of know, well, in this part of the year, I'm probably going to be doing this. And then after that, I'll be doing that. Um, I'm trying, I'm trying to manage my time efficiently. I and mean, this is something that doesn't come naturally to me at all. And if, but obviously if, if, if I'm going to develop and expand as a writer, I basically need to write more stuff. And so, uh, again, it's the efficient management of time. That's the, the essential way of leveling up in that way. I think, I think the other thing, you've got to do because if there's always a danger that basically your writing time that you set aside for writing will become the time when you're doing you, you you end up doing stuff around the house or you end up going shopping or you end up just because you're around rather than sitting in an office somewhere and it's basically making sure that 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 time gets respected as work time as as a, as a personal thing that you yourself say well i am now working i'm not going to go off and do this this or that thing i i need to resist the idea that this time gets chipped away at uh, and I think this is, I mean, this is something a lot of writers find that it's because we really do associate the idea of working with going to a place and being in that place. And then when you've left that place, you're not working anymore. And I suspect that it's, one of the, it's probably very common for anyone working from home in any kind of, in any kind of field. 
So for my kind of d- day and a half of actual sort of daytime when I'm not in the office, I get out of the house. I tend to go into town. I sit. Uh, at the moment, my my favourite spot is the um, the cafe in Waterstones in Leeds uh, because they don't play music, which is always handy. And I, you know, obviously, if I need to look something up, I've got my phone in Extremis. But <laughs> I'm writing. I'm writing for my sins a historical fantasy at the moment, and my. God, that's turned out to be a lot harder than I could. The problem is, I have a bit of a conscience problem when it comes to accuracy. I and mean, I have the same with the science and children of time. But I find I feel I've got to make it as accurate as I can. And history is just this never ending rabbit hole of you just keep running into these people and you just find, right, well, I want them to be here. But what, what is, there's the war on who owns that town this, on this particular point. And maybe you can find it out on Wikipedia and maybe you can't. I had a bit recently, well, all right, I'll have this character write, I'll, I'll do this bit as an epistolary. I'll have this character write a letter to the King of Poland to, 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 to report on these events. Who's the King of Poland? It's this guy who's like the King of Poland for like nine months <laughs> before he naffs off and becomes the King of France. Is the king for that particular point? Do I need to mention that? Surely someone will be remarking on this. <laughs> and you just, you just, cause you, you, I mean, it's, it's actually that tension between telling the story and getting the, the information over. And you kind of think, well, if I'm writing, and yeah, I, I'm obviously most of the people I'm writing this for will not be particularly up on 16th century Polish history and won't care. But I then start thinking, well, what about that one person that does? And when he beers me at a convention and basically complains that I've got the King of Poland wrong, and I don't want to. <laughs> Sorry, I've completely forgotten what the original question was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure either, actually. But we've moved on to the question of research, which I did want to talk to you about. And I wondered if you could tell us if there have been times when you have interviewed people uh, in pursuit of the research that you've needed to do for your work. I did do a lot of interviewing for Children of Time. In order to get the science right, I mean, I ended up going down to the, um, I spent a whole afternoon at the entomology department of the Natural History Museum talking to people about, oh, what, what if spiders got this big? Would be the problems. And an awful lot of, I mean, weirdly, not, so, I mean, some of the stuff that was in response to my questions made it into the book, but also an awful lot of the stuff they were just talking about as stuff they were interested in also made it into the book. Because a, a, a bit, and this is one of the things you find with the historical stuff as well. Um, the more you dig, the more useful stuff you find. Um, so there's a whole kind of subplot with a particular type of beetle in uh, Children's Time, which is actually very important to the plot. All of that comes out of a conversation I had with a, with a, a beetle expert at the Natural History Museum, which is not in, in any way what I go down there for, but it was fascinating. And I, it suddenly struck me that that will dig me out of the hole I'm about to fall into in the plot. I think one of the th- one of the best things you can have as a writer is a broad but shallow education. So if you if you are the sort of person who tends to troll Wikipedia or watch lots of documentaries and so forth, because at least even if you don't know it, you at least have a you have, know enough to search for it at that point. And though though, though things you the things you you come across and file away, they're like they're going to be useful at some point or something. Whether it's you know, whether you're kind of refiguring history for a fancy world or whether it becomes the spark of you know, whether a piece of science becomes the spark for a science fiction novel or something like that, it's all it's all it's all grist. Okay, just coming on to the final couple of questions now. I wondered if there's any other advice you could give more generally for authors. Uh, most of the people who listen to this podcast are authors, and a lot of them are writing in the fantastic genres, so they're fantasy and science fiction. But there are other people that are writing in action and murder mystery and romance. So, what sort of general advice would you have for aspiring authors? I would say that it took me 15 or 16 years of submissions to get into print. 
And that was very hard at the time. And I, because it was the thing I wanted to do, it was extremely demoralizing, um, to, to just to get each round of, um, rejection slipped through. But I, and in my case, rather than writing the same book over and over again, which is what some people do, I just went on to a new book at that point. And I think that was probably the right decision for me, at least. One of the things I would also say, um, that I would not have any, any way acknowledged at the time is that a lot of the stuff I wrote in, let's say, the first 12 of those 15 years was not of a publishable quality. Um, I didn't seek out any, uh, I didn't seek out second opinions. I didn't go to a writer's group. I didn't pay someone to look over and comment on my book, which all of which are things that you can get done. And so an awful lot of those submissions would not under any circumstances have got published. And it wasn't just sort of, oh, it's bad luck. Or there's some weird conspiracy of the publishing industry, just that they weren't very good. And it's one of the, you know, write, writing, writing is a craft that you, you improve at the more you do it. So with hindsight, do you think you'd have got more support earlier on in your career? Uh, beta readers and writing groups and other resources like that? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, if you're using beta readers, I think there's no point using friends and family, which is, I think, what most aspiring writers have access to immediately, because you're not going to get uh, a proper critical response from them unless they are very happy about hurting your feelings. <laughs> because, you know, it's one of the... And the other, the other thing, of course, the other side of that coin is if you get that critical comment, it's almost certainly going to hurt. And it's almost certainly going to do some trampling all over the things you love. And you've got get past that pride and and absorb what they're saying. You, I mean, because, I mean, God knows... You know, the knee-jerk reaction with me is certainly to think, well, what do these people know about my work? They're not the, you know, I'm the writer. I, I'm, I'm the final arbiter of what is good or not. And of course, that's not true. And so, I mean, even before I do my own read-throughs, so with the last target in the Wolfpack, I left it two months after finishing it, so it would cool a bit, and I wouldn't quite attach to it before I go through, so I could edit myself, because I can feel very competitive with myself <laughs> about the about you know, if I want to make change, make changes to my my earlier work, it can be quite a hard thing. And, I mean, beyond that, it's just a very difficult business to get into. And so you've got to kind of anticipate falling down a lot of times before you finally get anywhere. Okay. So what kind of help do you have now with your work? Well, now I have an agent. My agent's the first kind of, um, first sort of proper press set of eyes. I mean, all honesty, actually, my wife is an extremely good reader as well. And she, she would, she's now kind of confident enough. And comfortable enough with, um, <laughs> with <laughs> criticizing my writing that she can come back with comments, all of which, yeah, everything's, everything she's said so far has been extremely insightful. But beyond that, of course, it does go to the agent and he will make sure that there are no obvious problems with it before it gets submitted to the publisher. And so in general, the only times I'm using beta readers is for purposes of kind of expert knowledge. So for example, I've got a near future military sci-fi, uh, novella coming out. I think maybe late this year. And I did basically run that by a, a handful of members of the armed forces. So well, am I, am I doing anything stupid here? And I had, you know, I, ha- I had science checkers on children of time and I'm, I'm going to, I've got a bunch of people lined up to check the history of my history. Okay. So how do you find these contacts? This is me. This is me going on Facebook and saying, does anyone know anyone who knows anything about this? I mean, with the entomology, it's just one of those weird serendipity things. My One of my very close friends at university, his brother, turned out uh, is the head of entomology at the Natural History Museum. 
And so I just had an in. But it's one of the, I mean, I know, I know writers who've done this sort of thing with all sorts of weird things. And I think if you get the right person in any, any profession or any kind of field of knowledge, they will be extremely happy to give you the benefit of their um, expertise. So, you know, re- recently I, ba- I basically put out a call for anyone who knows anything about 16th century Hungary. And you know, I've got like four or five people who are going to read, read, read through the finished work. Um, I guess submitted. So, okay. So, can you tell us what you'll be publishing in the next few months? Then, okay. Well, I mean, next month, uh, in fact, is the Bear and the Serpent, which is the sequel to Tiger and the Wolf, and that's the uh, book two of three of that series. It's not going to be another ten booker. <laughs> and I've there are basically the more immediate projects that I'm working on right now. I can't talk about because um, they haven't been announced by the relevant publishers. But okay. But they're terribly exciting, I can assure you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then after, I mean, after that, um, it looks as though I will be doing a new science fiction novel for Tor UK. Assuming that all comes together, we're just uh, talking over the details of that. And I've got another couple of things that have been written and picked up, but I don't know when they're going to be published. But again, in that, this case, they're the, this uh, military science fiction novella and also a, um, a fairly near future science fiction novel dealing with um, bioengineered animal soldiers. Okay, so if people are intrigued by all of this, they want to find out more about you and about your work, Adrian, where can they go to find that? Okay, well, I mean, I've mean, i got a, a blog, which is uh, www.shadowsoftheapt.com. Although I have to say, usually because I've actually got stuff I'm, I'm working on, I'm not the best blogger or the best at updating it. Beyond that, I mean, I think I'm in the very fortunate position that everything I have written is still currently in print so uh, all good bookshops i think okay well adrian thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you and best wishes to you for the future well thank you thanks very much thank you bye-bye cheers bye